All right, so, so we have been uh, taking a, a I wouldn't say it's a deep dive. I think, I think we've kind of been like skirting the surface a little bit as we've been taking a look at what we believe is biblical kingdom culture. So some of the core values of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, these are things that we, that we want to value and prioritize and highlight, but at the same time, I want to acknowledge that this is a journey that we walk on in many, in many cases for the rest of our lives as we keep growing in putting these things into place, right? You don't, you don't just say yes to following Jesus and then boom, you're perfect at humility. In fact, if you think you're perfect at humility, I promise you you're not humble. Okay, you've got some room to go. Uh, you're not going to be perfect at generosity. You're not going to be fully developed at unity or at uh, compassion, what we're looking at today, or, or celebration. There are going to be times where you're going to have to find yourself being a little bit uh, toxic, a little bit on the pessimistic side, and you're going to have to remind yourself what there is to be grateful for and, and to kind of starve entitlement and feed gratitude. We, these are things that we're going to have to, frankly, work on for the rest of our lives. But I do believe that we can grow. I believe that we can mature. I believe that we need to have a vision for the good life. Not the good life as, as most people would define it, but the good life as in, no, we can actually grow in our goodness. We can be better at our love for one another. We can be better at, at, our, at our levels of generosity where we hold loosely to, to everything that God's put into our hands. Gifts, talents, time, energy, relation, relational ability. We can grow, but it, but it does actually take a a vision of God, I, I can actually be a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. And so, and so it, is, it is a mixture of both wanting to continue to cast and remind ourselves of this vision, but also from time to time reminding ourselves how we can actually go about growing in these different ways. It doesn't just happen because we have good intentions. It happens because we actually live the way of Jesus, and then over time we begin to experience the life of Jesus, right? So today, I want to take a look at compassion, and, and just a couple of comments before I get into some of the passages of Scripture. When I was first thinking about this, and we were talking as a team, and going forward, a large part of this is going to be, um, at, at least a large part of the application, is for us to keep remembering that as we love God, we love people, and we have a lot of people around us that are in need of compassion, that are in need of love, that are in need of, of generosity, but, but today, I'm not gonna focus so much on the needs relating to social justice, people that are under-resourced, vulnerable, the exploited, et cetera, although that is one of the applications. But I think that even that sometimes can be done with skew motives. So what I wanna get at today is the heart behind doing good, the heart behind loving others, helping others, being moved to a point that we actually want to make a difference in someone's life, and, and I do believe genuinely, that, that ultimately what I'm gonna to describe today, it is supernatural. It's not just gonna happen because we will it hard enough. I think it does begin with that desire, it begins with a conviction, but outside of a healthy, life-giving relationship with God, outside of, of a relationship where we allow Him to love us, and where He actually continues to melt our hearts, it's only as a response to that that we can actually love others unconditionally, that we can value other people, that we can dignify, humanize other people, because we live, in my opinion, in a cultural moment of indignity, of intolerance, and where we tend to dehumanize anyone we disagree with. 
And it's so easy to do it because most of it is done from a bit of a distance. Most of it is done online or, 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 in a, or in a little conversation with people about other people, but it's seldom directly to the person. But, but what we don't realize is that we're actually feeding, in my opinion, a subconscious mindset of dehumanizing some people. And they tend to be the people that we disagree with the strongest, or the people that, that, that we consider to be the most uh, vile or immoral. And, and, and these are not all the people that you think of. I mean, I mean we, can, we can, there's a need for us to guard our hearts against not just, not just people that you consider to be inappropriate, but, but towards people that are rich and powerful and, and that are greedy and, and mistreating others. Even there, we can so easily dehumanize. But, but from a secular point of view, it's easier to empathize with someone that is vulnerable. Now, it's not either or. I'm saying that you will never lock eyes with someone that doesn't matter to God. Every single person has actually initially been created in the image of God. Now, a lot of deformation has taken place. Yes. Yes. And we live in a sin-filled world, in a broken world. And so there is an enormous amount of pain inflicted on one another. Like, for the most part, we don't even need an enemy. We do it ourselves. Right? And it begins with a heart. And, and so compassion, it, I'd like to put it this way. I think that everything we've been talking about, it starts with devotion and it ends with compassion. Everything else falls into that because all the other principles, all the other values are parts of what contribute towards devotion and compassion. Or there are outworkings of Devotion and compassion. Humility, it, it requires humility to be, be devoted to God. It requires humility to value someone even though in the natural we don't like them, we don't agree with them, and we don't want to. It takes, it takes humility to be generous to someone that maybe ordinarily you wouldn't feel compassionate towards. And it absolutely takes devotion. It takes loving God and being loved by God in order to develop a heart for unity, humility, Compassion, generosity, celebration, warmth. But I am convinced that perhaps the biggest challenge facing mankind, all seven point however many billion of us living on the planet at the moment, is the fact that I think we live in a love-starved world. We live in a intrinsically valued starved world. And I, think, and I think that the enemy does have a plan to try and separate people, isolate people, turn us into thinking in terms of us and them. Whatever that looks like, and whoever us is to you and whoever them is to you. But that is so anti the core of the gospel. That is so anti the core of who Jesus is. Jesus is and was and still is a deeply compassionate person. And it humbles me, and it frustrates me, and it scares me that some of the people that felt safest with Jesus would be some of the same people that would feel the most unsafe around Christians today, or in churches today. There was something about Jesus that the outcast, the prostitute, the corrupt tax collector, the, the whoever, they, they felt that they, like they were drawn to Jesus. Yeah. They weren't repelled by him. 
The only people that were repelled by Jesus were actually the self-righteous. And the only people that I, that I can see that Jesus was ever quite harsh with were the self-righteous. He was never harsh and hectic with someone that was caught in sin, with someone that was wrestling with something, battling something, someone who was struggling in their faith. The only time that he was ever quite like hectic was with those who thought that they had it all together. I remember reading a story many, many years ago in a brilliant book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. One of, well, it was one of, the, one of the first books that helped me shift my understanding to some extent about, about just what grace may actually be. And I remember him starting kind of, literally the opening story of the book is telling a story of a friend of his who, who worked with the down and out in the city of Chicago. So this, this would have been probably like in the 90s, I would imagine and how he came into contact with a lady, a prostitute who, who had a drug addiction and who was looking to this guy for some kind of help and perspective because she'd been prostituting. She'd been pimping her two-year-old daughter out because she could make more in an hour from that than what she could in an entire evening. And yes, that is absolutely shocking. It is criminal. There's a whole lot that's wrong with that. But, but, but I want you to focus on the next part. And in the conversation, he asked her, like, why didn't you go to, like, a church or, you know, to, to try and get some help? And her response to him was kind of like shock and horror, like, why would I ever do that? I was already feeling bad enough about myself. Now, now that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be, I mean, part of the dilemma for this man is that he is obliged to report this, because it is criminal behavior and you are destroying another life. I'm not watering any of that down. But I've had to ask myself many, many times since then. I, mean, I, mean, I probably read this 20 years ago. Are we creating the kind of culture, the kind of environment, where we don't excuse and water down people hurting people, but where, but where someone that is hurting someone that doesn't want to hurt someone would at least feel safe enough to say, I don't want to hurt people. I need help. And where, and where there'd be enough compassion. I've been reading a few books over the last while on, on people in the LGBT com LGBTQ community and, and just, just some of the, the response of the church and, and the gospel and all the rest. And, and again, it's just sad and humbling for me reading story after story of real people where, where they experience the most incredible rejection by the pastor or the church leaders. Now, I'm, I'm hoping, I don't know this for, for a fact, but I'm hoping that some of these stories are from a little bit longer ago, but I don't know that they are. And again, maybe your, your first thought is, yeah, but, okay, but what's right and what's wrong? And, and I honestly think that that should be secondary. I think what should be primary. See, Jesus didn't first tell people to get their act together or to sort out their issues. He didn't tell Zacchaeus, hey, hey, first go and sell half of what you have and give four times as much as, as, as what you stole if you stole from someone. No, no, he just went and had lunch with him or supper, which, which by the way, in the culture of those days was, an, was a deeply relational, like that was, a, that, was an, that was probably the greatest example of acceptance. Is it possible to accept a person without agreeing with everything in their lives? I'm saying that, that for us to have compassion Again, just, just two examples. One, one was a story, I remember reading this quite some time ago as well, 
about a church in Texas, actually. So if anyone, if you know anything about the Bible Belt of America, kind of Texas would be part of the, the buckle of the Bible Belt. Although this, this is, I think this church was in Austin, if I remember correctly, so it's a little bit more, I guess, progressive. And how two, two lesbians actually chose to go to a church just to basically cause trouble. Like they, they were flirting with each other. They, they were basically trying to rile the people up in the congregation. And when no one responded, and when people actually showed them love, they were really surprised. Their words were, they didn't treat us like we expected them to. But what is disturbing is that the expectation is that you're gonna be shunned and shamed. Another is of a, of a, another young lady who, I don't know if I'm going to go into the whole backstory, but, but long story short, landed up marrying another woman. This woman died a, a grisly, unfortunate, accidental death. And, and even though this woman had grown up in the church as a kid and an early teenager, she, she became v- like harshly rejected in the church. Uh, when at 13, she came out, or 14, she came out as, as wrestling with, with wanting to transition, with being trans, etc. And, and And again, she was deeply, deeply mistreated. Didn't step foot inside of a church for another 18 years until her wife died. And how, quite literally with fear and trepidation, she contacted a church in the hope that they might be willing to do the funeral, but not expecting that they would. Very conservative church in the community. And, and again, how this pastor didn't have to think about it, didn't, it was just, there was an immediate compassion let us take care of it. We'll cover the cost. We'll help you out. And, and in this most tragic, painful season of this person's life, how, how this brought her back to an appreciation for God and his love and his people. But, but those stories are so few. Now, now I'm just using, I'm using examples from, from what is probably the most controversial or sensitive uh, conversation and, and debate in our cultural moment. The point I'm trying to make, and you may have easy thoughts about some of the examples I'm giving you, but what about, what about that politician that actually, if you're honest with yourself, you hate? What about that business person who you just assume is greedy and exploitative? Or what about that person in your class or that, or that person that you've heard things about at work or at school? We all, I just wanna be clear, every one of us, if you're a human being, which if you're not, that's weird, okay? Then we're more advanced than what you realize and you look a lot like a human. But, but, but if we're all human beings, we will all have people that we would struggle to instinctively value and dignify and humanize. And as a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, so not if you say I'm a Christian, I mean if you're following Jesus, the answer isn't that we're gonna deny that is that we're gonna acknowledge it when it happens and we're gonna ask God to help us because we wanna love people the way that God loves people. If you assume that God hates all the same people that you do, you can be sure that you've created God in your image and we're not being formed into his. You see, if we cannot value people intrinsically, well then, then even acts of compassion, acts of kindness, acts of justice can actually have more to do with myself than with the person. 
It can have more to do with my own ego or my own need to be needed or my, or my own need to, to almost do like a bit of a guilt offering. And it's not because I actually know that there is value in this human being. That Jesus, if he were here, would be looking at that person with value and dignity. It wouldn't just be paternalistic. It wouldn't just be to kind of you know, do a token thing. No, no, there would be a holistic love. Does this make sense? So, yes, let's get into Scripture. <clears throat> Matthew 9, verse 35. says that Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing, which in other tr English translations would often use the word preaching, so teaching in the synagogues, announcing or preaching the good news, and healing, or he healed every kind of disease and illness. Now, if you'll allow me to nerd out for a moment, I know that some of you were at a conference a couple of weeks ago, a Dream Team conference, and I, and I touched on this briefly. But it, it, it so has stood out to me over the last while, not, not so much that Jesus went around preaching, teaching, and healing, but that portion where it says every kind of illness and disease. Now, not, not the fact that he can heal illnesses or diseases, but the fact that there are two words there, illness and disease. So then I got a little bit OCD and started trying to understand the difference in the original language because every English translation is translated from the original Greek text. And, and these two words, which is nosos noso in Greek and malachia, only appear, malachia in particular, only appears three times in the whole of Scripture, all three times in the book of Matthew. And the three times that they appear are in Matthew 4, verse 23, this portion I just, I just read now, Matthew 9, verse 35, and then again a few verses later in Matthew 10, verse 1. Now, without having the time to unpack it all to you, what I believe it means is that Jesus doesn't just want to offer healing. And by the way, even that term healing comes from the, word, the root word that we get the word therapy from. And, and it's not just to be therapeutic in, in, in one or two senses, but it's actually to serve in such a way that people find restoration and, and healing holistically. Now, those two words, the short version is that, is that it is not just referring to physical ailments. It is referring to everything. Every malady, every mental illness, every psychological rewiring that needs to take place. Our deepest emotional needs, relational needs, social needs, physical needs. He went around healing. He is able to heal every type, every kind, even as we prayed earlier at the end of worship. There isn't a challenge that you're facing. There isn't an issue, if I can use that word, that, that, that you've been battling maybe for your whole life, that Jesus isn't able to or wants to speak into or encourage or lead. Now, it's not always, in fact, I would say it's not even often just a miracle like that. I would say most of the time, it's actually a process. Because even the word saved, that appears 54 times in the Gospels, in the New Testament, even that word saved, some of the time it's referring to a spiritual salvation, but actually a lot of the time it's referring to, to a physical deliverance or a holistic healing. Sometimes it is protection from physical harm. The point is that Jesus doesn't want to just touch one part of your life. He wants to touch every part of every person's life. And some of the time it's going to be through deliverance. A lot of the time it's going to be through discipleship. So that's why it's interesting, to, it's, it's important to note that Jesus went teaching and preaching. Preaching means I'm proclaiming the truth, but teaching is I'm gonna tell you how to live in this truth. I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you how to live in freedom, how to live in increased 
wholeness and health. Come on, is there anybody here that would like some increased healing, some increased wholeness in their lives? Okay, four of us. I'm just telling you, I wanted. No, guys, no jokes. I want increased healing and wholeness in my life. That passage in the message version, I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates that. He says that he healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. So yes, he, 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 he was able to and wants to heal bodies, but he also wants to heal the bruised and hurt lives. I made reference to the fact that it also appears in Matthew 4 verse 23, almost exactly the same words. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. Again, message translation puts that verse like this. He also healed people of their diseases and of the bad effects of their bad lives. Because the reality is, all of us are also experiencing consequences to choices, right? But, he, but he's wanting to heal. He offers a holistic, it's not just getting you into eternity. The gospel, the, the compassion of Jesus offers life. So, verse 35, it goes around preaching, teaching, healing, every kind of illness and disease. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. That, that term, which is, wow, it's a weird term. It is, Splach nitz oh my, in Greek, okay? Actually makes reference to, to like where your bowels yearn. It's like it's, it's something in your gut. Like, like, like there's, a, there's actually a physical, it's to feel a level of sympathy, to pity. Not in, perhaps in the, the traditional meaning of the term nowadays. He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Jesus goes around preaching, teaching, healing all kinds of illnesses and diseases. He, he is moved with compassion when he sees the needs of people. And he, and he says to his disciples, guys, they are ripe and ready. There are a lot of people that are ripe and ready. They're not the, the variable. I'm moved with compassion. So God's not the variable. We're the variable. He's like, we need more people. Sometimes people ask, where was God? I wonder if the angels say, where were God's people? Because God was there. But if God chooses to mostly use his body, which is us, that is followers of Jesus, then the question should more often than not be, where were God's people? Not where was God? Because God is close to the brokenhearted. That word compassion, that exact same original word for compassion is used in several passages. I think we'll have a few examples up on the screen, but that is where Jesus had compassion on the sick. He had compassion on the hungry. Yes, physical needs. So when you're helping out with one of the feeding programs or one of the schools in the area, that's, that's being like Jesus, okay? He did have compassion. How do you think God feels about children coming to school in our community that haven't had breakfast or haven't had supper the night before or haven't eaten for two or three days? Do you think he's dismissive of that or do you think he is moved with compassion? I think he's moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion for those asking for mercy. Matthew chapter 18 tells that incredible parable, it's worth reading at some stage, about, about the servant who owed a debt he could never pay. The king brings his accounts you know, up to date and he wants to 
basically, he, he's, he's threatening to jail this guy because he, hasn't, he can't pay anything back. But he begs for mercy, and the king, which represents God, is moved with compassion and forgives him. Interestingly, that same, the, the whole point of that story is that he then goes and begins to strangle another servant who owes him like a pittance in comparison. And he does have him thrown into jail until he can pay it all back. And the point of the story is that even though this person, and Jesus says, like, you have received so much compassion, so much grace and mercy, yet you can't issue, you, you, you cannot express even a little bit to this other person. So make no mistake, in terms of God, he's very compassionate, but, but what do I think might bother God? I do think it would bother him if he has been incredibly gracious to us and if I've experienced that grace. Now, many people haven't, but I know I have. I know that I've experienced the outrageous, undeserved, unmerited grace of God. For me to withhold grace from anybody else, I think that they would cheese God off, if he can get cheese off. Well, he can, we know he can, he can get angry. I think he'd care. Because, because I have received so much. Anyway, that's just a side note. Compassion on those asking for mercy. People needing direction and teaching. It's, it's important, you see, the reason why I'm trying to broaden this definition a bit is that I think we all, I think our, our human nature tends to think that compassion is just felt in one way and expressed in one or two ways. So it's very narrow. But it is so much broader than that. Mark 6 verse 34 says, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them. That stands out to me. It doesn't say he began feeding them, began clothing them. No, no, in this particular, so yes, he does that as well, but in this particular context, he's, he began teaching them because it actually takes compassion to want to help someone, to want to disciple, to want to walk with someone, to want to help someone grow. So that's why when you, when you lead a life group and you feel intimidated and you don't know how to do it all and you feel like this is, you're in over your head, well, be encouraged that that is an act of compassion. To, to, and yes, we need God. If you're getting involved in one of our next generation serving areas, yes, that is, you require just as much compassion to wanna, to wanna run a small group for a bunch of six-year-old boys. In some cases, you might need more compassion. I don't know. Maybe more when they get to 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, 20, 20 and then they become human again. Anyway, um, please don't think that compassion is only if you are serving in a one-dimensional social justice way. That is also compassion, absolutely. But everybody cannot do everything. We are a body. And if every Christian tried to do everything that every preacher tells them to do, you'd need like 72 hours at least in every eight hours of the day. So, so you can't do it all. But we are all called to have compassion. And let compassion drive service. Let compassion drive teaching or discipleship. Let compassion drive serving coffee. Remember, we always tell, we don't serve coffee, we serve people. Or it takes compassion to persevere with a colleague or someone at school who maybe ordinarily would drive you crazy or maybe they're really lowering your street cred and you're like, oh, I don't wanna hang out with you, missing in public with you, but I'm compassionate. Okay, I'll persevere. Like, it's compassion. He had compassion over a mother grieving the death of her son. Honestly, I mean, I'm embarrassed to, to, to admit this, but I'm, like, I'm just telling you, again, there's, there's, there's room for all of us to grow, there's room for me to grow. I, I wanna do better as a person and as a church at serving, supporting, and comforting people that are grieving. 
I don't think I'm great at that. And probably because of that reason, maybe we're not great, as good at that as what we could be. He was compassionate towards the repentant. Story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. The father had compassion when he saw his son running. Now, just, just by the way, as a side note, that story, I know many of you would be familiar with the story of the prodigal son. He had compassion as his son returned home. But in this particular case, compassion didn't cause the father to go and rescue his son from his choices and consequences. The Bible says that the son came to his senses. And I think way too many well-meaning Christians, so this is just a counterbalance to the overly emotional, sentimental stuff that might stir up. I think very, very many well-meaning Christians would have wanted to go and make the younger son's life as comfortable as possible in the pig pen when the father was actually waiting for him to come to his senses. And he knew that, to some extent, it was gonna require discomfort and pain. So I know that there have been times in my life where I'm working against God because unconsciously, it's almost like I think I have more compassion than God. I mean, I don't consciously think that, but there have been times where, where I'm, so, I'm so burdened for the person, I feel so sorry for them that sometimes I've wanted to intervene when I think God's like, okay, I'll wait for you. I mean, you're delaying it by six months, but I'll wait, I'll wait. Does it make sense? Love and compassion doesn't mean that you rescue every person. Or, remember, that whole idea of a friend to their future, not just a friend to their feelings. Anyway, that's, again, that's a side note. And then, this is, I, I want to kind of conclude with this, which doesn't mean I'm going to be done in two minutes, so don't the worship team come up just yet or anyone switch off. Hang in there. Because this is, this is actually the part that I, want, that I want to stand out the most for us. I believe that Jesus also set an example of being deeply compassionate to those that are different and that disagree. In Luke 10, verse 25 onwards, in fact, that's where that passage on the wall comes from. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him the question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Because this guy's a teacher of religious law, right? So he says, so the man answers, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is like, A plus. Right. Jesus told him, do this, and you'll live. Love God, love people. Then, here's a man that we can probably all relate to. The man wanted to justify his actions. Ever wanted to justify your actions? I sure do. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? See, it's easy for us to love people that are like us. It's easy for us to love people who think like we think and act like we act and have the same values that we have. So please understand that that, 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 that question, that is the context for how Jesus replies with the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied with the story. A Jewish man, a Jewish man, this is important to know, was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits, stripped, beaten up, left half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest, that's like a pastor and others, came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he did see him. We can all pretend we don't see stuff. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, so that's like, I don't know, maybe like a volunteer, someone else that's helping carry the load in the church. Walked over, looked at him. So it's the same word in Greek as what 
that first word is about saw. He saw him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion. Now, for those of you that, that aren't too sure of the history, j- traditional Jews 2,000 years ago would have seen Samaritans as despicable, despised, half-breeds. They, 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 they were desperately unclean because they, they didn't have the same traditions in some, in some cases towards how to worship the one true God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so you have to understand, they, like, this was crazy controversial. Jesus knows what he's saying. A despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn. I mean, it cost him, right? It was an inconvenience. It was money. And this is to someone who you know would, would probably hate you. That, I, think that's, I think that's a big part of the point of the story. This, I don't think that Jesus was primarily telling the story, because remember, parables typically have one key point. He wasn't primarily telling the story to, to motivate um, acts of kindness. He was telling the story primarily to emphasize who, who it is that would actually, who it is that, that constitutes being a neighbor. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man, and if his bull runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. They didn't have Apple Pay at the time. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, go and do the same. I don't know who comes to your mind when you think of people that you don't like, or people that you don't respect. And by the way, you don't have to respect. I, if, if, I, if I'm gonna get technical, I think that respect is earned, but honor is given. Value is given. There's an intrinsic value on every single human being. You don't have to respect the person. You don't have to agree with the person. But for crying out loud, for the love of everything holy, can we ask God to keep helping us grow in our love for people, no matter how much you disagree with them, no matter how much behavior may disgust them, may disgust you. Yes, some behavior is disgusting. But it's amazing how Jesus could cope with disgusting behavior and still love the person. And make no mistake, I mean, if you think of the woman called adultery, he's, he shows incredible grace and mercy to her. And then he says to her, okay, now go make some different choices. He was lovingly truthful, but he was also truthfully loving. Remember that whole idea of grace without truth is meaningless, but truth without grace is just mean. It's just mean. Grace and truth is medicine. And we live in a world, you're gonna see people potentially today, definitely tomorrow, that are in need of some medicine. Because Jesus wants to heal physical diseases and the bruised and broken parts of people's lives. In conclusion, going back to that passage, from Matthew 9. I'm not gonna reread it all, but I want you to understand that, that, that in the last couple hundred years, we've, people have added in verses and chapters. This, is, this isn't how it was written, okay? That's to help us find, that's to help us now. 
We can say, go find, look up Matthew chapter 10, verse one. But, but understand that, that when Matthew was writing this gospel, it just continued from, he went around preaching, teaching, healing, all kinds of diseases and illnesses. He saw the crowds, had compassion, was moved with compassion. He said, the harvest is ripe, workers are few, pray the Lord of the harvest. Then he goes straight into the next verse where Jesus called his disciples, Matthew 10, verse one, and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness, to heal, to heal physical needs and to heal the bruised and broken parts of people's lives. That is the authority. In fact, I would take it further and say that is the commission. That is, that is what we've been commissioned to do. So I'm gonna ask you to stand with me, please. <clears throat> because I think that one of our greatest needs is to see the way Jesus sees. I think, I think if we will see the way that Jesus sees, I think we'll be more prompted to do what Jesus did or to do what he would do if, if he were me. But here's, here's the challenge. And I, I wish I had, I mean, this is probably a whole series on its own, so I wish I had more time. But just to, just to encourage you practically for a moment, this is hard to do. I do think that this requires a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit doing something in us and through us, but also, and please don't miss this, please don't miss this, good intentions are not good enough. We can all agree with this stuff. But if we're living a lifestyle that makes it hard to tolerate our family how are we gonna have compassion and patience and kindness for people that aren't even our family? Or for people that we're not even living with? What I mean by that is, without living a sustainable way of life, so without appropriate margin and rhythms, you can have the best intentions in the world. I don't know about you, but I get prickly, I get irritable, I get, I get reactive, and, and, and I find seeing other people's needs, I see them as interruptions and irritations. So, so I'm just trying to be as blunt as possible. Without us actually living at a pace that is healthy, if we just keep squeezing everything out of every moment of every day and we just keep adding more and more and more in, I don't think it matters how much we agree with this. It doesn't matter how much we want to be loving and compassionate and kind. We're not gonna be loving and compassionate and kind. We need sleep. We need exercise, we need to watch our diet, we need time with God. And yes, we need to work and carry responsibilities, but, but and all of this is within a healthy rhythm so that we're not just getting a job done when we're at work or we're not just getting through our classes when we're at school, but actually the way that we are turning up. We are, we're able to bring some healing, we're able to bring some medicine because we're not just seeing it as a job, we're seeing it as our mission field. We're seeing this as the place where the harvest is ripe. So I'm just saying practically, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And if we're just gonna keep living where we're burning the candle on both ends and the middle, well, guys, we're not gonna change. 